This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Chapter 8, Part B. The Life of the Spirit and the Social Order. The full life of the spirit must be more rich and various in its expression than any life that we have yet known, and find place for every worthy and delightful activity. It does not in the least mean a bloodless goodness, a refusal of fun and everlasting fuss about uplift. But it does mean looking at and judging each problem in a particular light, and acting on that judgment without fear. Were this principle established, and society poised on this center, reforms would follow its application almost automatically. Specific evils would retreat. New knowledge of beauty would reveal the ugliness of many satisfactions which we now offer to ourselves, and new love the defective character of many of our social relations. Certain things would therefore leave off happening, would go, because the direction of desire has changed. I do not wish to particularize, for this only means blurring the issue by putting forward one's own pet reforms. But I cannot help pointing out that we shall never get spiritual values out of a society harried and tormented by economic pressure, or men and women whose whole attention is given up to that daily task of keeping alive. This is not a political statement. It is a plain fact that we must face. Though the courageous lives of the poor their patient endurance of insecurity may reveal a nobility that shames us, it still remains true that these lives do not represent the most favorable conditions of the soul. It is not poverty that matters, but strain, and the presence of anxiety and fear, the impossibility of detachment. Therefore this oppression at least would have to be lightened, before the social conscience could be at ease. Moreover, as society advances along this way, every, even the most subtle, kind of cruelty and exploitation of self-advantage obtained to the detriment of other individuals must tend to be eliminated, because here the drag-back of the past will be more and more completely conquered, its instincts fully sublimated, and no one will care to do those things any more. Bringing new feelings and more real concepts to our contact with our environment, we shall, in accordance with the law of apperception, see this environment in a different way, and so obtain from it a fresh series of experiences. The scale of pain and pleasure will be altered. We shall feel a searching responsibility about the way in which our money is made, and about any disadvantages to others which our amusements or comforts may involve. Here, perhaps, it is well to register a protest against the curious but prevalent notion that any such concentrated effort for the spiritualization of society must tend to work itself out in the direction of a maudlin humanitarianism, a soft and sentimental reading of life. This idea merely advertises once more the fact that we still have a very mean and imperfect conception of God, and have made the mistake of setting up a watertight bulkhead between His revelation and nature and his discovery in the life of prayer. It shows a failure to appreciate the stern, heroic aspect of reality, the element of austerity in all genuine religion, the distinction between love and sentimentalism, the rightful place of risk, effort, even suffering, in all full achievement and all joy. If we are surrendered in love to the purposes of the Spirit, 
we are committed to the bringing out of the best possible in life. And this is a hard business, involving a quite definite social struggle with evil and atavism, in which someone is likely to be hurt. But surely that manly spirit of adventure which has driven men to the North Pole and the desert and made them battle with delight against apparently impossible odds can here find its appropriate sublimation. If anyone who has followed these arguments and now desires to bring them from idea into practice asks, what next? The answer simply is, begin. Begin with ourselves, and if possible, do not begin in solitude. The basal principles of all collective life, says MacDougall, are sympathetic contagion, mass suggestion, imitation. 153. And again and again the history of spiritual experience illustrates this law, that its propagation is most often by way of discipleship and the corporate life, not by the intensive culture of purely solitary effort. It is for those who believe in the spiritual life to take full advantage now of this social suggestibility of man, though without any detraction from the prime importance of the personal spiritual life. Therefore, join up with somebody, find fellowship, whether it be in a church or society, or among a few like-minded friends. Draw together for mutual support, and face those imperatives of prayer and work which we have seen to be the condition of the fullest living out of our existence. Fix and keep a reasonably balanced daily rule. Accept leadership where you find it. Give it, if you feel the impulse and the strength. Do not wait for some grand opportunity, and whilst you are waiting, stiffen in the wrong shape. The great opportunity may not be for us, but for the generation whose path we now prepare, and we do our best towards such preparation, if we begin in a small and humble way the incorporation of our hopes and desires, as, for instance, Wesley and the Oxford Methodists did. They sought merely to put their own deeply felt ideas into action, quite simply and without fuss, and we know how far the resulting impulse spread. The Bab movement in the East, the Salvation Army at home, show us this principle still operative, what a little flock, dominated by a suitable herd leader and swayed by love and adoration can do. And these, like Christianity itself, began as small and inconspicuous groups. It may be that our hope for the future depends on the formation of such groups, hives of the spirit, in which the worker of every grade, the thinker, the artist, might each have their place, obtaining from incorporation the herd advantages of mutual protection and unity of aim, and forming nuclei to which others could adhere. Such a small group, and I am now thinking of something quite practical, say to begin with a study circle, or a company of like-minded friends with a definite rule of life, may not seem to the outward eye very impressive. Regarded as a unit, it will even tend to be inferior to its best members, but it will be superior to the weakest, and with its leader will possess a dynamic character and reproductive power which he could have never exhibited alone. It should form a compact organization, both fervent and businesslike, and might take as its ideal a combination of the characteristic temper of the contemplative order, with that of active and intelligent Christianity as seen in the best type of social settlement. This double character of inwardness and practicality seems to me to be essential to its success, and incorporation will certainly help it to be maintained. 
the rule should be simple and unostentatious and need involve little more than the heavenly rule of faith hope and charity this will involve first the realization of man's true life within a spiritual world order his utter dependence upon its realities and powers of communion with them next his infinite possibilities of recovery and advancement last his duty of love to all other selves and things this triple law would be applied without shirking to every problem of existence and the corporate spirit would be encouraged by meetings by associated prayer and specifically i hope by the practice of corporate silence such a group would never permit the intrusion of the controversial element but would be based on mutual trust and the fact that all the members shared substantially the same view of human life strove though in differing ways for the same ideals were filled by the same enthusiasms would allow the problems and experiences of the spirit to be accepted as real and discussed with frankness and simplicity thus oases of prayer and clear thinking might be created in our social wilderness gradually developing such power and group consciousness as we see in really living religious bodies the group would probably make some definite piece of social work or some definite question specially its own seeking to judge the problem this presented in the universal spirit it would work towards a solution using for this purpose both heart and head it would strive in regard to the special province chosen and solution reached to make its weight felt either locally or nationally in a way the individual could never hope to do and might reasonably hope that its conclusions and its actions would exceed in balance and sanity those in which any one of the members could have achieved alone i think that these groups would develop their own discipline not borrow its details from the past for they would soon find that some drill was necessary to them and that luxury idleness self-indulgence and indifference to the common good were in conflict with the inner spirit of the herd they would inevitably come to practice that sane asceticism, not incompatible with gaiety of heart, which consists in concentration on the real, and quiet avoidance of the attractive sham. Plainness and simplicity do help the spiritual life, and these are all more easy and wholesome when practiced in common than when they are displayed by individuals in defiance of the social order that surrounds them. The differences of temperament and of spiritual level in the group members would prevent monotony, and ensure that variety of reaction to the life of the spirit which we so much wish to preserve those whose chief gift was for action would thus be directly supported by those natural contemplatives who might if they remained in solitude find it difficult to make their special gift serve their fellows as it must group consciousness would cause the spreading and equalization of that spiritual sensitiveness which is as a matter of fact very unequally distributed among men and in the backing up of the predominantly active workers by the organized prayerful will of the group all the real values of intercession would be obtained for this has really nothing to do with trying to persuade god to do specific acts it is a particular way of exerting love and thus of reaching and using spiritual power this incorporation as i see it would be made for the express purpose of getting driving force with which to act directly upon life for spirituality, as we have seen all along, must not be a lovely fluid notion or a merely self-regarding education, but an education for action, for the insertion of eternal values into the time world, in conformity with the incarnational philosophy which justifies it. 
such action such insertion depends on constant recourse to the sources of spiritual power at present we tend to starve our possible centers of regeneration or let them starve themselves by our encouragement of the active at the expense of the contemplative life and till this is mended we shall get nothing really done forgetting st therese's warning that to give our lord a perfect service martha and mary must combine one fifty four we represent the service of man as being itself an attention to god and thus drain our best workers of their energies and leave them no leisure for taking in fresh supplies often they are wearied and confused by the multiplicity in which they must struggle and they are not taught and encouraged to seek the healing experience of unity hence even our noblest teachers often show painful signs of spiritual exhaustion and tend to relapse into the formal repetition of a message which was once a burning fire the continued force of any regenerative movement depends above all else on continued vivid contact with the divine order for the problems of the reformer are only really understood and seen in true proportion in its light such contact is not always easy it is a form of work after a time the weary and discouraged will need the support of discipline if they are to do it therefore definite role of silence and withdrawal perhaps an extension of that system of periodical retreats which is one of the most helpful features of contemporary religious life is essential to any group scheme for the general and social furtherance of the spiritual life it is not to be denied for a moment that countless good men and women who love the world in the divine and not the self-regarding sense are busy all their lives long in forwarding the purposes of the spirit which is acting through them as truly as through the conscious prophets and regenerators of the race but to return for a moment to the psychological language whilst the divine impulsion remains for us below the threshold it is not doing all that it could for us nor we all that we could do for it for we are not completely unified we can by appropriate education bring up that imperative yet dim impulsion to conscious realization and willingly dedicate to its uses our heart mind and will and such realization in its most perfect form appears to be the psychological equivalent of the state which is described by spiritual writers in their own special language as union with god i have been at some pains to avoid the use of the special language of the mystics but now perhaps we may remind ourselves that by the declaration of all who have achieved it the mature spiritual life is such a condition of completed harmony such a theopathetic state therefore here to-day in the worst confusions of our social scramble no less than in the indian forest or the medieval cloister man's really religious method and self-expression must be harmonious with the life process of which this is the recognized if distant goal and in all the work of restatement this abiding objective must be kept in view such union such full identification with the divine purpose must be a social as well as an individual expression of full life it cannot be satisfied by the mere picking out of crumbs of perfection from the welter but must mean in the end that the real interests of society are identical with the interests of creative spirit in so far as these are felt and known by man the interests that is of a love that is energy and an energy that is love towards this identification the will tendency of each truly awakened individual must steadfastly be set and also the corporate desire of each group as expressed in its prayer and work 
for the whole secret of life lies in directed desire. A wide-spreading love to all in common, says Royce Brooke in a celebrated passage, is the authentic mark of a truly spiritual man. 155. In this phrase is concealed the link between the social and personal aspects of the spiritual life. It means that our passional nature with its cravings and ardors, instead of making self-centered whirlpools, flows out in streams of charity and power towards all life. And we observe, too, that the ninth perfection of the Buddhist is such a state of active charity. In his loving, sympathizing, joyful, and steadfast mind, he will recognize himself in all things, and will shed warmth and light on the world in all directions out of his great, deep, unbounded heart. 156. Let this, then, be the teleological objective on which the will and the desire of individual and group are set, and let us ask what it involves and how it is achieved. It involves all the ardor, tenderness, and idealism of the lover, spent not on one chosen object, but on all living things. Thus it means an immense widening of the arc of human sympathy, and this it is not possible to do properly unless we have found the center of the circle first. The glaring defect of current religion, I mean the vigorous kind, not the kind that is responsible for empty churches, is that it spends so much time in running round the ark, and rather takes the center for granted. We see a great deal of love in generous-minded people, but also a good many gaps in it which reference to the center might help us to find and to mend. Some Christian people seem to have a difficulty about loving reactionaries, and some about loving revolutionaries. And in institutional religion there are people of real ardor, called by those beautiful names Catholic and Evangelical, who do not seem to be able to see each other in the light of this wide-spreading love. Yet they would meet at the center. And it is at the center that the real life of the Spirit aims first, thence flowing out to the circumference, even to its most harsh, dark, difficult, and rugged limits, in unbroken streams of generous love. Such love is creative. It does not flow along the easy paths, spending itself on the attractive. It cuts new channels, goes where it is needed, and has as its special vocation, a vocation identical with that of the great artist, the loving of the unlovely into lovableness. Thus does it participate according to its measure in the work of divine incarnation. This does not mean a maudlin optimism or any other kind of sentimentality, for as we delve more deeply into life, we always leave sentimentality behind. But it does mean a love which is based on a deep understanding of man's slow struggles and of the unequal movements of life, and is expressed in both arduous and highly skillful actions. It means taking the grimy, degraded, misshapen, and trying to get them right, because we feel that essentially they can be right. And further, of course, it means getting behind them to the conditions that control their wrongness, and getting these right if we can. Consider what human society would be if each of its members, not merely occasional philanthropists, idealists, or saints, but financiers, politicians, traders, employers, employed, had this quality of spreading a creative love, if the whole impulse of life in every man and woman were toward such a harmony, first with God, and then with all other things and souls. There is nothing unnatural in this conception. 
it only means that our vital energy would flow in its real channel at last. Where, then, would be our most heart-searching social problems? The social order, then, would really be an order, tallying with St. Augustine's definition of a virtuous life as the ordering of love. What about the master and the worker in such a possibly regenerated social order? Consider alone the immense release of energy for work needing to be done if the civil wars of civilized man could cease and be replaced by that other mental fight for the upbuilding of Jerusalem. How the impulse of creative spirit, surely working in humanity, would find the way made clear. Would not this at last actualize the Pauline dream of each single citizen as a member of the body of Christ? It is because we are not thus attuned to life and surrendered to it, that our social confusion arises. The conflict of impulse within society simply mirrors the conflict of impulse within each individual mind. We know that some of the greatest movements of history, veritable transformations of the group mind, can be traced back to a tiny beginning in the faithful spiritual experience and response of some one man, his contact with the center which started the ripples of creative love, if, then, we could elevate such universalized individuals into the position of herd leaders, spread their secret, persuade society first to imitate them, and then to share their point of view, the real and sane, because love-impelled, social revolution might begin. It will begin when more and ever more people find themselves unable to participate in or reap advantage from the things which conflict with love, when tender emotion in man is so universalized that it controls the instincts of acquisitiveness and of self-assertion. There are already for each of us some things in which we cannot participate because they conflict too flagrantly with some aspect of our love, either for truth or for justice or for humanity or for God. And these things, each individual, according to his own level of realization, is bound to oppose without compromise. Most of us have enough widespreading love to be, for instance, quite free from the temptation to be cruel, at any rate directly, to children or to animals. I say nothing about the indirect tortures which our sloth and insensitiveness still permit. Were these first flickers made ardent, and did they control all our reactions to life, and there is nothing abnormal, no break in continuity involved in this, only a reasonable growth, then new paths of social discharge would have been made for our chief desires and impulses, and along these they would tend more and more to flow freely and easily, establishing new social habits, unhampered by solicitations from our savage past. To us already, on the whole, these solicitations are less insistent than they were to the men of earlier centuries. We see their gradual defeat in slave emancipation, factory acts, increased religious tolerance, every movement towards social justice, every increase of the arc over which our obligations to other men obtain. They must now disguise themselves as patriotic or economic necessities, if we are to listen to them. As in the Freudian dream, our hidden unworthy wishes slip through into consciousness in a symbolic form. But when their energy has been fully sublimated, the social action will no longer be a conflict but a harmony. Then we shall live the life of the Spirit, and from this life will flow all love-inspired reform. Yet we are, above all, to avoid the conclusion that the spiritual life in its social expression shall necessarily push us towards mere change, that novelty contains everything, and stability nothing, or of the will of the Spirit for the race. Surely our aim shall be this, 
that religious sensitiveness shall spread, as our discovery of religion in the universe spreads, so that at last every man's reaction to the whole of experience shall be intinctured with reality, colored by this dominant feeling tone. Spirit would then work from within outwards, and all life, personal and social, mental and physical, would be molded by its inspiring power. And in looking here for our best hope of development, we remain safely within history, and do not strive for any desperate pulling down or false simplification of our complex existence, such as has wrecked many attempts to spiritualize society in the past. Consider the way by which we have come. We found in man an instinct for a spiritual reality, a single, concrete, objective fact, transcending yet informing his universe, compels his adoration, and is apperceived by him in three main ways. First, as the very being, heart, and meaning of that universe, the universal of all universals. Next, as a presence including and exceeding the best that personality can mean to him. Last, as an indwelling and energizing life. We saw in history the persistent emergence of a human type so fully aware of this reality as to subdue to its interest all the activities of life, ever seeking to incarnate its abiding values in the world of time. And further, psychology suggested to us, even in its tentative new findings, its exploration of our strange mental deeps, reason for holding such surrender to the purposes of the spirit to represent the condition of man's fullest psychic health and access to his real sources of power. We found in the universal existence of religious institutions further evidence of this profound human need of spirituality. We saw there the often sharp and sky-piercing intensity of the individual aptitude for reality, enveloped, tempered, and made wholesome by the social influences of the cultus and the group, made too available for the community by the symbolisms that cultists had preserved, so that gradually the life of the spirit emerged for us as something most actual, not archaic, a perennial possibility of newness, of regeneration, a widening of our span of pain and joy, a human fact completing and most closely linked with those other human facts, the vocation to service, to beauty, to truth, a fact, then, which must control our view of personal self-discipline, of education, and of social effort, since it refers to the abiding reality which alone gives all these their meaning and worth, and which man, consciously or unconsciously, must pursue. And last, if we ask as a summing up of the whole matter, why man is thus to seek the eternal, through, behind, and within, the ever-fleeting? The answer is that he cannot, as a matter of fact, help doing it sooner or later, for his heart is never at rest till it finds itself there. But he often wastes a great deal of time before he realizes this. And perhaps we may find the reason why man, each man, is thus pressed towards some measure of union with reality, in the fact that his conscious will thus only becomes an agent of the veritable purposes of life, of that power which, in and through mankind, conserves and slowly presses towards the realization the noblest aspirations of each soul. This power and push we may call, if we like, in the language of realism, the tendency of our space-time universe towards deity, or, in the language of religion, the working of the Holy Spirit. And since, so far as we know, it is only in man that life becomes self-conscious, and ever more and more self-conscious, with the deepening and widening of his love and his thought, 
so it is only in man that it can dedicate the will and desire which are life's central qualities to the furtherance of this divine creative aim. End of chapter 8b. End of book. Footnotes. 153. Social Psychology. 154. The Interior Castle. Sleuth Habitation. 155. The Adornment of the Spiritual Marriage. 156. Warren, Buddhism in Translation, page 28.